I did get an offer for 10 mil and it was to a very big publisher and they basically said, I think we can find somewhere of squash it for and I was like the thought of my beautiful brand being squashed the money in the world hello it's Andrew May and welcome to another edition of performance intelligence the podcast about all things human performance back in 2013 when everyone was saying the print media industry was on its last legs today's guest took that as her cue to jump right in With no industry experience and investing her own money, she founded a lifestyle and entrepreneurship print magazine that quickly transformed into a multi-platform media empire, distributed across 37 countries, expanding to digital, live events, publishing, and even her own product line. When I look at her Instagram and her social media, I get tired. How does she do all this? But that's not her only success story. The founder and editor-in-chief of The Collective Hub, CEO of The Messenger Group, and best-selling author, who has a dedicated bookshelf on my bookshelf, all the Lisa Messenger books. In fact, it's taking up now more than one bookshelf, Lisa. Uh, you're a renegade and a risk taker. You seem to thrive when the chips are down, and you've dedicated your work to empowering other entrepreneurs to follow their own path of success. And I sometimes see you when you're in Australia at Bondi Beach. You're the girl from Daddy Do, and we've got you in LA, Lisa Messenger. Welcome to the podcast. podcasts are so special and indulgent for us just to catch up together and then everyone who's listening just can be a fly on the wall. <laughs> oh, that's my gratuitous little secret. I just contact all my friends and go, I haven't spoken to Lisa for ages. Hey, wizard, <laughs> let's book her in. Call it a podcast, catch up. Yeah. I, I, I have loved watching your story. Uh, I get dizzy. I get tired and I get inspired all in one. So for those people who do know Lisa Messenger, you adapted through COVID. We spoke on the NAB Business Fit podcast as well. You had some great ideas on that. But what are you doing now in LA? Yeah, and also like I, I always think, gosh, I've known you a long time. I mean, I go back to like when I published your your first book. So I feel like we've had so many iterations. So Oh, I skipped past I- that. Oh yes, this is the woman that got me into publishing. Yes. <laughs> I had no idea. No clue. It'd come out of sporting world and into this big, bright world of publishing. And you said, it's easy, Andy, just go a self-publishing model. Bang. Six months later, we had a book. We did indeed. And I feel like that kind of lays the groundwork for my various iterations in business. But what I'm doing in LA at the moment, I feel like I've had nine lives in business and I just keep kind of rebounding and pivoting depending on what's going on in the market. But basically, yeah, so launched the magazine in 2013, did 54 issues, 37 countries, closed it in April 2018 for various reasons, which I've written multiple books about. And then kind of went, what's next? And realized that, you know, I love content. I love inspiring and educating others. So we started producing books and digital products and has kind of been growing since there. So our first book in the range, Mantras, has sold over 150,000 copies in Australia. And I'm now doing 40 to 60 products a year. The reason I'm in the pause, US pause, is- pause, pause, pause. <laughs> <laughs> Forty to sixty products a year. Now, there's a, a lot of a varied audience listens to this podcast. Lisa, we have athletes, we have entrepreneurs, we have a lot of business people as well. We have some people like you and I who want to take on the world, and we just even have some uh, solopreneurs who are out there, you know, doing a great job punching above their weight. Who think of writing a book or have a goal to write a book on Ooh. the next. 18 to 24 <laughs> months and you're punching out that many how and that, that that's that's me asking this seriously because I look at that I know how much work it takes to 
bring a product to market, to do 40 to 60, it, it, you, you do my head in. You really do my head in, Lisa Messenger. Well, okay. So how a lot of failure and a lot of lessons over many, many years. So you know this, but I started my first business on the 22nd of October, 2001. So I've been in business for 21 years. So, you know, and I often say 11 years of over-servicing, under-charging, being everything to everyone. And then finally, 2013, something actually stuck. So, you know, it's been a long journey. But for me now, I suppose... You know, we have a lot of systems and processes and rigor around the production and then the marketing and the distribution. And you'll remember this for anyone wanting to write a book. So many people are like, great, I've written it. Like the writing of it and coming up with the, you know, ideating the concept, getting it down on paper, people often think is the hard part. And it is, don't get me wrong, but it's actually then, you know, you don't want to end up with 10,000 or 3,000 or even 1,000 books in your garage. So the big piece then, which I've been kind of trying to master over the last few years, and I think we're getting pretty good at it finally, is how do we distribute it? What are our channel partners and how do we market it? And so we kind of nailed that in Australia pretty well. There's almost not a store or an online platform that you can't go into or onto and find one of our products. And so we decided, okay, Australia is like an amazing market and it's a really good micro market for the rest of the world. So then I was like, okay, let's do what we've done in Australia, learn the nuances of the US and really amplify it. And, you know, I've had many false attempts at the US and we can go through that. And finally, I think I'm kind of cracking it. So I'm probably about the most excited I've been about business in a very, very long time. Look out, people. Now, you've been very diplomatic. Australia's a nice micro market. So what you're really saying is in Australia, just down the bottom of the world, a great place. No, but seriously, on a global stage, because I think a lot of people who listen to this in Australia in publishing. So you know, one of the multiple hats I wear as well is an author and your success rate. I think there's actually a couple of success rates that we should look at with an author. But the number one that people look at, how many books have you sold? But I think you could write a great book that 10 people read who run companies and then run massive programs. So it could be the impact rather than just sales. But yeah, a bestseller in Australia is 5,000. Our population base compared to America, it's America 10 times bigger. And then you've got Canada, you've got Europe as well. So it's you've honed or you've crafted your skills here. I'm looking at this as a performance coach, what you've done, yes. trying to deconstruct you, girlfriend, that you've you've worked it here, you've doubled overseas, you've come back. That song, I get knocked down, we'll play that in the post-production, <laughs> but I get up again, that's you. <laughs> and, and, and the yeah. song's going to sound a lot better in background than me butchering at least. But you do keep going. You really do keep reinventing. And I love seeing your story. I'm, I'm proud of your story. But one thing I don't know, how did you end up there like this time? Because you know, watching you on Insta and uh, then catching up with you on the podcast and then we sort of fill in the blanks, you've been going to go over, but now you're there. What happened? Yeah. And also I feel like, because I want to be generous to the audience, I feel like we could spend like another, you know, two hours, two days unpacking like how I've grown in Australia and then how we're emulating that here. And I'm happy to do that at another time or now because I think it's really important. And I also, 
hate it when I listen to, you know, other business or, you know, leadership podcasts and I'm always asking, but how, but how, but why, but why? So I'm happy to dig into We'll keep some open loops. We want listeners to come back. So Lisa Messenger is yeah. awesome at saying, we've got to do that, got to do that. And I think the podcast we did with NAB, we said, right, we'll come back three times. So yeah, let's, let's, uh, well, let's dig into both those. First of all, yeah, what, what got you over there this time? Basically, to go back to go forward, I've had a few false attempts at the US. So, and some relative success. So in 2013, the one of the 37 markets that we were in was the US. And um, that worked well for us in terms of my magazine. In 2014, I signed a global rights deal with Simon & Schuster for my first book in the series, Daring and Disruptive. That didn't work for a whole lot of reasons. And then we've tried various distribution um, arrangements and a whole lot of other stuff. And to be honest, nothing has really worked. Then earlier this year, best laid plans, my fiance and I, after a really hectic year last year, we sat down at our place in Bangalore near Byron and we said, right, 2022, we are gonna live in Bangalore, that's it. We're committed. And then the next thing he said, oh, by the way, I need to move to Austin <laughs> to grow his business. And I was like, what? Anyway, like I do, I try and turn, you know, an interesting situation into an opportunity. So I just was like, okay, I'll come over for a while. So I spent two months in Austin. And all I did was I went out and I met with people, left my ego at the door because whilst the brand is relatively well-known in Australia, it's not in the US. And so I went out and I listened and I had conversations and I really started to understand the nuances of the US marketplace. And then I said to Stephen, I need to be in LA. I ended up having a meeting with an agent in LA and I now have 15 sales reps in the US selling me into things like Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, like all of the big guys and all the onlines. And then what I've been doing over here is I've been building out a marketing team. So yeah, we I just basically bit the bullet and I, I've been back and forwards four times now. And for the first three times, I kind of kicked and screamed a bit. And then the last time I was here, I did. Um, we did four trade shows, New York, LA, Vegas, and um, Atlanta, and things started to fly. We got into 132 stores within a couple of weeks. And then I was like, okay, let's do it. The funny thing is now Stephen's ready to go back to Australia. And I'm like, no, no let's, do another, <laughs> let's do another year. <laughs> so the lesson for this, for people who want to crack the overseas market, is get engaged. Uh, have your partner drag you overseas, kicking and screaming, land there <laughs> and go for it. But the, the thing I want to drill down on, you left your ego at the door. I love that. And it reminded me of Ed, Ed Cowan, a former Australian cricketer. Ed's a, a good mate of mine. You've met Ed. We'd have coffee together at Bondi Beach after a mutual yes. fitness session. And Ed said a great quote uh, when he was playing cricket for Australia and then he wanted to get into investment. His brother has got a very successful investment business. But he said, well, a lot of athletes do, Lisa, is they, they've climbed a mountain or a lot of entrepreneurs may have climbed the Australian mountain and you go, right, I'm just going to jump across or paraglide across to the US mountain. And Ed said, that does not happen. And that's why you fall on your backside. So what you've got to do is come back down the mountain and then get at the bottom of the new mountain and actually look at, okay, how do I scale this? But knowing you have skills, you have experience, you have resilience, stories, grit to draw upon. So you can scale it quicker, but you've got to have that humility or leave your ego at the door. So I see a real parallel with what Ed said. I love that. So what, what, what does that mean for you, leaving your ego at the door? When you go in 
and I know you wouldn't think this, so I'm going to put some words just to be you know, antagonistic, but I'm a rock star. I'm Lisa Messenger. Don't you know who I am? Which I would never, you're right. <laughs> but, but when you've sold you know, thousands and thousands, millions of products in Australia, and you go to the US, you're starting right, right at, the, at the base. Was that hard? So we are now in October and I first came over in March. So it's probably taken almost this amount of time of what I would say is just listening and um, and really leaving your ego at the door. And what that means for me is going into a meeting and literally, you know, in Australia, people will generally be like, oh, yeah, they've either heard of me or the brand or there's some kind of connection. This is literally going in and people are like, who are you? Like you've got five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it is. And so it's really about digging deep and going, okay, I'm coming from the baseline. And I think if people are prepared to do that and listen more than they speak, then there's a good opportunity. And the next thing I did was once I started to understand, and there are a lot of differences with the US markets and within the US, you know, 50 to at least different kind of nuances depending on the different states and all of that kind of thing. From there, I've really made it my mission to um which is completely different in australia so say for the last probably 12 years if someone says to me can i have a coffee with you and pick your brains i'm always like send me an an email first top line it to me chances are i'm not the right person to speak to someone in my team is here i'm like i'll have coffee with anyone who'll have coffee with me because it's just about connections and you you know having conversations at the start and you never know what person is going to know someone who's going to know someone and so Stephen and I've been laughing about it because literally it's like a little spider web and I'm just like oh my god coffee here coffee here and now uh, we've only been in now I'm addicted to coffee I'm shaking oh, We're gonna... <laughs> yeah. but like what I mean about that is in Australia I just I don't have the time or the space for that anymore but here I'm just like it is extraordinary how quickly I was just saying before I think I've probably made in the last two weeks like 10 really solid connections all of whom have introduced me because I've told them exactly what I'm trying to do here and what I need, they've introduced me to at least 10 people each. So straight away, boom, I've got 100 solid connections. And that is, you know, people that are influencers or content creators, that is brands that are like-minded, non-competing, that we can collaborate with. It's events that we can sample at or I can speak at. And speaking about leaving, you know, ego at the door, like you, I get paid very good money to speak in Australia and also here. But here I'm like, I'll speak for free. Like, so it's very much about just going, I am nobody here. I know that. And to make it here, I need to listen to people and understand what they want and how I can be of service. And then people really want to help. So that's what we're doing. I love that. There's a Buddhist word, Shoshin, which is the beginner's mind. You epitomize that because the experience you've had a couple of decades, you, know, you started this when you were 12. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when you say we go back, yeah, yeah, we knew each other at school, even though uh, we were at school, or you were at Dunny Doo Dubbo, we, we've we said that's 50K <laughs> up the road. Um, but that's that just is awesome awareness or awesome performance intelligence to get out of your own way. But it's also, it's humbling to go to a trade show where you might have some snotty-nosed you know, millennial there uh, who's treating you with contempt and then you have to start again. So, Oh, I was laughing, you know, as in, at, in New York probably six weeks ago 
at Shop Object, which is a big trade fair there. For anyone listening, just to be helpful, there's Shop Object and New York Now, both amazing trade fairs for kind of gifting. And, yeah, there was a woman who I was literally standing there, my face is all over my books and stuff, and she's literally saying in front of me to the, one of the sales reps, oh, no, 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 these wouldn't work for us. They're just a bit basic. And I was like, okay, thank you. Like, you just hey, got to. Hey, I'm, I'm here. That's me. That, that's my book. <laughs> yeah. You just got to like listen to everything and really even in that conversation, you know, my ego was like, what what, what are you going on about? But, you know, you've got to drop that. And I was like, okay, just listen, like what she's saying that. And I was like, okay, yeah, there's some some fair commentary in what she was saying. So I just try and listen to everything and just, you know, brush aside my, you know, my ego and my don't you know who I am. It's such, <laughs> a, it's such an important back. lesson for people listening to this. It's not even reinventing, you're, you're re-establishing. Yeah? And to go to new markets, and whether it's a, an athlete that has to you know, try a different position, whether it's an executive that goes to a totally different function of the business, whether it's an entrepreneur that has had to digitize, you really do need to get out of your own way and to not come at it through ego and to have that open mind. But did you have any moments where you thought, oh, It'd be nice to go back to my bees living between Bondi and Bangalore and you know, everything's cool <laughs> and I've got all my friends and the sun. Um, I mean, we'll definitely come back. Australia is 100% home and, you know, America is just at the moment a really, really exciting market and I feel like people over here have been so kind and helpful. But it's interesting, you know, like in Bondi and Bangalore, I know who my hairdresser is. I know who my, where my gym is. I've got my community. I know where the great coffee is. So it's really simple things, not only establishing yourself in a new market, but also like finding um, your community and your tribe and your people. And that's what we did early on. We came from Austin to LA and we really actually just stayed in Santa Monica for two weeks. And every single day we went out to a different area the palisades west hollywood venice santa monica everywhere and we were like and we walked around and we were like what feels like our tribe so now i kind of have a bit of a joke i feel like i am in bondi because i have my kind of you know a couple of parameter a couple of kilometer parameter here where i go to barry's in the morning for training I was, I was going to ask, where are you training? Because I know. Oh, yeah, like... we could get into that. Somewhere for yoga. We know where our coffee shop is. Like, I actually am on a first name basis with a whole lot of people here already in a couple of weeks. And I think that's really important. So we can dig into rituals and routines because I think that is something super important. Yeah. <laughs> You've got to have your fitness kick of the morning, don't you? Absolutely. Uh, well, I've done Barry's three times in the last 24 hours and everyone there this morning. Three times like, in 24 hours? Like, no, 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 I'm putting my strength and conditioning hat on. <laughs> recover, yeah? Stress recovery, Lee. Stress recovery. You know, you helped me write the book, the on-off switch. Remember that? I know. You put I, the I switch on the front. How are you switching off now? Come on, switch girl. I went a little bit hard. <laughs> yes. Well, on that, what what do you do to manage fatigue? And then we are going to get into the four piece, which is the framework for today's discussion. Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to you going, oh, that's inspiring. And there'll be a whole bunch going, I can't do that. Where do you start? So we'll give them the framework on the four piece. But before we do that, yeah, what do you do to avoid burning out? Like I have, I, I put 
holidays in my calendar way in advance. And then I have little micro stuff during the week. Because like you, I run you know, high octane, but then I need to downregulate. Well, I don't think I've ever asked you this in our discussions and conversations. But what do you do other than fitness and writing books and energizing and meeting with punks with, and to tell them who you are? And also, do you know what? It's reprioritizing. I mean, I'm in a very different stage now to and you know it changes all the time but like now I'm very much more around you know lifestyle and creating a business that I love and it works around me whereas you know in prior iterations when you and I have known each other I've been like all business and really you know suffered from burnout and you know adrenal fatigue and overwhelm and stress and all that kind of thing so now I'm very conscious about my boundaries and you know my specific routine so what I do is it's changed a bit what I would say is when I'm in Australia it's generally and more or less here as well I go pre 10 a.m and post 10 a.m so pre 10 a.m is my time and it's proactive me stuff so that is about going to the gym which I love because no one can bug me and it's about listening to podcasts and it's about meditating and journaling and feeding my soul and pretty much Pre 10 a.m., I try not to react or respond to anything much. And it's kind of nice because whilst I'm in LA, everyone's asleep in Australia. So it's like, ah, I can actually do this guilt free. <laughs> but I did this in Australia as well. From 10 a.m., it's kind of game on. So it is like now at the moment in the US, it's like a lot of US meetings. Then from about two or three in the afternoon, it's, you know, Australia, boom, let's go. But then at night, like tonight, I'm going to a breathwork class. Tomorrow night, I'm going to the class, which I'm pretty excited about because I've seen a lot of that on social media. I've never been. It's kind of a wild, witchy, dancing uh, meditation thing. So I try and bookend my day with, you know, hardcore cardio and strength. And then at night, it's kind of more like, you know, okay, breathwork. I'm off yoga. my hobby horse now. That, that's... <laughs> That's and I know you've been doing that plan for a while. That's great that you're still doing that, and I, and I love the the delineation that pre ten a.m. it's me time. Put your oxygen mask on first. I've seen that real change in you, and there's there's no surprise to me why you've gone to the next level because you are you're down regulating. You know you you need the read the reload the recharge the restock the recalibrate keep going keep going rewords, and then you can fire at a million miles an hour. And I know in, in, in my early iteration of my career as well, it was the same. You know, work harder, get more results, but you actually need to work smarter and then have time out and, and then bounce back up. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, I mean, I used to do this for years. You know, I said the first 11 years over-servicing, under-charging. I mean, people would say to me, can I have a meeting with you over dinner or can I blah? And I'd just say yes, yes, yes to everything. And now I'm very specific. Like, you know, if people, if I'm at a dinner party or something and someone starts picking my brains about business, sometimes I might be like, yeah, this feels okay. But if it feels energetically wrong, I'll actually say, hey, can we take that, you know, out of here and, you know, shoot me an email and I'll deal with that at another time. Like I'm very protective of my space and my downtime now. And I think that's really important. And I'm also acutely aware that I just said the pre-10 and post-10 and that doesn't work for everyone. But what I would suggest is that anyone listening, you know, carve out time that does work for you because I think having time to fill our own cups and that self-care, be it exercise or meditation or journaling or a myriad of other things, time in nature is really important. 
You've spoken and written and podcasted and every medium openly about some of your battles with mental health. Uh, you gave up alcohol. Congratulations. And I know you're so proud of that. And you have an anniversary around that. And you've had some downs that have played out on the public forum as well. So when you're having a challenging time, what do you do and how is it different to the good day? Yeah, and thank you. I think that's really important to acknowledge. And yes, my anniversary, my fiance laughs at me because I remember all my anniversaries, <laughs> my business anniversary, 22nd of October, 2001, and my sobriety anniversary, which is the 8th of November, 2004. And that's just, for me, what I would say to anyone listening around that before I get to what I do on a down day, it's around how was I self-sabotaging? How was I keeping myself small? What was I using as a crutch? And kind of going back to the school side of things, and hopefully a lot of people listening will relate to this to some degree. Inside of me, I think I always knew that there was something ready to come out, some way to you know, make a mark in the world. And I felt I wasn't surrounded by people who really inspired me or, you know, allowed that to come out. So what I did was I drank and I partied and, you know, that kind of filled me up, but it was a very lonely, very depressing way to be. And, you know, I spent a lot of my twenties feeling very suicidal and it just was horrible. So I hit a complete rock bottom and that's what I chose to do. And, you know, just putting down the drink, people are like, amazing, not amazing. Like that was the start of the journey. Cause of course you put down the drink and then I had to deal with all the demons and why I was actually drinking. And so, you know, years and years of therapy and a number of different modalities. And I love all of that kind of thing. So on a bad day, you know, and it's hard when we're in that space where you just think having a pity party or actually for me, sometimes, you know, it really comes out as like real depression or anxiety or overwhelm. And, you know, even though ridiculously all these books in and, you know, I've been to AA, I've crawled through sweat lodges nude in Costa Rica. I've spent weeks at a time in Osho's meditation retreat in India wearing purple ropes. I mean, you name it, I have done it, right? Yet still on a bad day, I can really think, I don't want to get up. I don't want to do this. So this is when the tools and the toolbox are so important. And so I need to know what are my triggers and what's going to switch me out of this. So I freaking love dancing. I love dancing to deep house. I love going to groove on. So sometimes I'll just put on music and I'll be, you know, unashamedly just have a dance around my living room. It'll just shift me or I'll go for a run or I'll just get still and I'll get barefoot and I'll walk on the grass or on the sand in nature or I'll jump in the ocean. So whatever it is, and more often than not, it's really simple things that are free. I'll just do it, you know, just to shift. Now, the difference pre starting to do the work on myself is I just would have spiraled into a deeper, deeper, darker hole. But now, even when, and despite feeling hideous, I kind of know, okay, this is just now, this is a chemical thing, or this is, you know, a result of external triggers or whatever's going on for me, but I can now see the light and I know that it's just a temporary feeling. And so what I do is rather than sit with it for too long, I'll actually push myself out of it by something that I know will lift it. You know, the inside of me, sometimes my brain is fighting it. Nah, I just want to have a pity party today. Forget it. I don't feel like going for a run. I don't want to walk in nature. You know, the brain part of me, not the heady part of me will fight it, but I just have to, you know, shift. And sometimes it's okay to sit with it and 
cry and be in it and feel. I think that's important, but you've got to have the tools to shift you out of it, you know? Discomfort for a little period of time can be a massive motivator, a really good reflection point. But if you have a pity party for too long, in the end, it's only you because your family members get sick of you as well, right? So you're there, you're flying the pity party flag. But I want to commend you on two things. One is sort of hearing that I put on my psychology hat and exercise physiology hat, you're showing a really high level of self-awareness, but also self-regulation. So you know the triggers to help you, whether it's nature, whether it's journaling, whether it's exercise, crazy dancing. You don't want to see me dance. It's a double <laughs> bob, Lisa. It's not really nice. But so you've obviously done a lot of work on that because a lot of business owners would look at someone like you and go, oh, 26 books she's done herself, 400 books collectively, 37 countries with her magazine and print all over social media. She's those Richard Branson, I'm going to talk about your phone index in a minute. It's ridiculous. But I think it's really nice for real people to hear from a real person who's worked out some of her demons and some of her challenges. And what you've got is a manual to actually put that into practice, both on a good day and a challenging day. That takes a lot of work. That takes challenge and pain and struggle but commend you for doing it, right? Because you've got to dig deep. And I think sometimes people look at you and I'm sure they say, hey, you're so successful. Has it always been easy? It's not easy. And I mean, every single day, I also do all sorts of other um, wacky kind of rituals. Some of them are just visualizations. Like the other day I was um, feeling quite angry and frustrated around something. And so some of my stuff is quite wacky, but I've taught myself to visualize and just get really still in a meditation state and actually imagine like kind of black oozy, horrible stuff coming out of my skin and like letting it go. So I do all sorts of really simple exercises that I've taught for me. And what I would say is, you know, listen for the similarities, not the differences, because some people listening will be like, oh, that's really cool. I'm going to try that. Other people will be like, oh my gosh, she's so wacky. That's so out there. So I'm just like, I love dipping in and out of different modalities and continuously seeking and learning and expanding. And I think that's important. I mean, I would say I'm pretty spiritual. I'm not necessarily religious, but if a friend says, come to a church service, I'm like, yeah, I'm there. Like I just challenge myself and push myself and become a little bit counterintuitively purposely out of my comfort zone on a daily basis, just to keep learning. What are my triggers? What supports me? What are the tools that I can dip into? What makes me feel good when things are really off kilter? I'm feeling discombobulated because it happens, you know, often. You actually had what's called appreciative inquiry, which is one of the underpinnings for an entrepreneur, right? You build something. How different is your business now than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago? Totally different business model. So that ability to unpick stuff, why? The curiosity, like my son, why? Sometimes I just go, Archie, stop asking why, but I want to encourage it because I think that curiosity in you has led to where you are now, has led to that exploration in the good and the bad times. The second thing I wanted to say to you, just closing out on that, before we talk about the four Ps, because I know you like your alliterations. I want to commend you and I want to thank you publicly for being one of the first people way before Brené Brown made it cool. I saw you get up on stage. You and I spoke at an event that Gary Burt Whistle put on, um, Day of Inspiration. Do you remember? Yeah. (laughs) And you got up on stage. And so this was way before vulnerability was even a conversation in the boardroom. I think it's overdone now for not the right reasons because you have some people going, I'm going to be vulnerable so I connect with hearts and minds. And I know you be vulnerable and you show vulnerability. You stood up on that stage and you spoke about sobriety and you spoke about, I think you said your crazy monkey mind, and you spoke about the highs and lows. 
And I was sitting there and first of all, Lisa, I just went, oh my God, I can't believe she's saying this. Like no one says that. It challenged me. And then it was like, oh, people don't want the facade. So I saw how you connected with the audience and you connected with yourself. So I wanted to thank you. Long before Brené Brown made vulnerability the corporate lexicon, you were being vulnerable. Is that something you consciously chose? Did that just happen that day? Gosh, thank you. I just got shivers because you know how I feel about you. I think you're one of the greatest speakers I've ever seen. So I just went into like this whole, oh gosh, did I even speak on the same stage as you back then? Wow. (laughs) Thank you. Um, The vulnerability piece, do you know, I, it was never purposeful and it was never really purpose for me to put myself out there so much. I can talk about AA. I mean, see, this is a vulnerable thing. Still people are like, AA, you went to AA. I mean, when I gave up drinking 16 years ago, I went to AA every single day for probably nearly a year. And as part of that process, you have to stand up and tell what was the change and what it's like now. And it used to kill me, like, just to stand up there and talk about the fear, remorse, grief, loathing, like everything that I felt about myself. It was excruciating. but I found so much liberation and freedom in that. And also in those rooms, I just found that there were actors and businessmen and, you know, people living on the street and there was every walk of life and everyone from every part of society and it was a great normalizer and it was extraordinarily grounding and humbling. And I think I probably took that and the power of that, which was not talked about, and started thinking, wow, as I got more and more well and sober and I realized that other people would come into those rooms who were just at the beginning of their journey. And so that gave me the impetus to tell my story. And so probably I realized, you know, the power that was having and how much that was helping other people and how people had helped me at the beginning of my journey. And maybe because of that, I started sharing more openly and vulnerably in the real world. And what I realized is, and this is the kicker of the whole thing. And this is what I think so many people don't get. When you're vulnerable and open and authentic and real, there's nothing that can keep you small or afraid or in fear because everything's out there, right? So it's actually in and of itself extraordinarily liberating. And so whilst it may to some seem like selfless and brave that I'm doing that, it actually means that I can live a really kind of relatively easy life because there's nothing in the closet. You know, there's not going to be any shocks if someone suddenly says, ooh, I heard you gave up drinking and you went to AA. I'm like, yeah, cool. So pretty much everything in my life is out there. And so the vulnerability piece actually makes it a much cleaner way to live. Do you think before that you were acting? So I mean that metaphorically. You said you were with actors and business people and everything else. And do you think a lot of us, a lot of people listening to this are acting as well, pretending we've got our shit together when we don't? Oh, I was always acting. My God. Like if you have looked from the outside in and would I have met you when I was still drinking? Probably just after. I met you. I think the publishing we did. Oh, this is, I didn't realise we are going to go down memory lane. I just thought I'd say you are born in Cooler and I'm from Dubbo. Let's get on with it, messenger. I finished working with the Aussie cricket team in 2005, 2006, and then self-published 2006, 2007. Yeah. So, uh, no, so I'd given up drinking then. But, no, before then, most definitely, from the outside in, I mean, I started my first business 2001. So for three years, you know, I ran what people would deem a successful, small, very small business at the time. From the outside in, everything, and this is many people, 
my life looked really squeaky clean. You know, I was fun. I was outgoing. I was, you know, relatively successful. I was, you know, a high achiever, but underneath I was absolutely dying, you know, and it's very, very exhausting and difficult to keep up that facade when you're kind of, here I am presenting one thing, wearing a mask and going home and feeling like inadequate, lack of self-worth, like, you know, feelings of loathing, like everything else that goes with it. And so, no, it's excruciating and still, to this day, you know, there are times absolutely when my ego takes over and kicks in and it's like, you know, I am this, I'm this and it's bravado. And again, I'm wearing a mask and I try to have awareness around that and strip that back very quickly. But sure, I still go into that sometimes. Absolutely. Deeper question on this, and you can answer this however you feel right on the spot. How do you define success now? Freedom and choice. Uh, success for me is freedom and choice. I could not care less about money for money's sake in and of itself. It's extraordinarily important, you know, to buy freedom and choice. And also, um, you know, I wrote a whole book about this money and mindfulness around the pendulation between, you know, doing good in the world and making profit don't need to be mutually exclusive. So, you know, for years I had, um, a problem with money. I thought money was a dirty word. And then I became very, very comfortable with it. And uh, yeah, success for me is being able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, you know, and loving what I get to do, what I choose consciously to do for work on a daily basis is really, really important to me now. You know, I think when times come where, you know, it's you become financially dependent or you're um, feeling like everything's falling out from underneath you and you don't have control. That's for me when I feel like I'm walking through mud. So I've been very conscious around, you know, getting everything in line so that I can consciously live a life that I want. That's success. You were very purposeful in that answer. You've thought about that. You have obviously been asked that before, but you're not that articulate unless you've worked out that clarity. And I think to segue and change gears a little bit into what can we give some business owners, some practical tips, I think, bang, there's so many takeouts with you. We're only just getting started. But understand what is success? Because for so many people, if it's the Western definition of success, power, money, kudos, you often get that and go, hey, there's no pleasure, meaning and purpose. It's the difference Todd Kashdan, not Kardashian, Kashdan, a leading psychologist talks about the good life pleasure, meaning purpose, and the goods life, money, power, kudos. I think you can have both, but your definition really is around meaning. It's around pleasure. It's around purpose. And what a great way to segue into the four Ps. I want to dig down and just cover these four Ps. So number one is purpose. The second one is developing a platform. You've got a love-hate relationship with it, but let's talk about how to develop it. Then the next one, publishing. I think everyone has a book in them. You told me this many years ago, and I was sort of arming and ahhing and all this self-esteem. What will my mates from Dubbo say when I write a book? I said that to you. You said, Andy, get over yourself and tell them to get over it. (laughs) (laughs) And the fourth one was podcasting. So let's do it in that order. First of all, talk to me about purpose. Then we'll talk platforms. Then we'll talk publishing. Then we'll talk podcasting. And I don't like even numbers. So can then you add a fifth P for me. Oh yeah, we'll add one in as we go. But I'm also going to say this just because I know we've kind of gone from a lot of the, you know, mental health, spiritual stuff. Also disarm me if you think at any point, because you know, it's a really important point as speakers, writers, I think we do learn a little bit 
you know, to answer things in a certain way. So if at any point throughout this conversation, you go, nah, that's just, you're giving me your normal thing, push me harder because I will answer as authentically as I can. And I think I did with the last one, but yeah, just keep pushing and pushing. Like, let's get whatever is in there. (laughs) Thank you. But you did. And that's why I asked you the question on stage and I could see you shift and I could see the emotion in you on that. And I could see you look up. So if you look at the NLP stuff, you went back to that. You're doing everything and more and more. (laughs) You never just give bites. But if I do hear something that I think is canned, I'll just sound an alarm or the wizard with me here will sound an alarm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Good. Okay. And leave that in. It's really important, all this stuff. Okay, let's go into the business stuff. Where do you want to start? Purpose. Yeah. I've read all this stuff, Lisa Messenger. Everyone says I need to have a purpose, blah, 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 blah. Where do you start? Yeah. So I wrote a book in 2017 called Purpose. And it sounds like such an arrogant topic to write about, but you know me well by now that most people are the guru of something and then write a book. I actually do it completely the opposite way. I decide on a topic and then I go through this whole journey of self-exploration and I write in real time as I'm working out, you know, the answers. And that's how I write. And that's what I, why I love to do it. And that's why I've written so many books. I believe in 2013, for the first time really in my life, I truly stepped into my purpose. So that took me as a small business owner, 11 years <laughs> from 2001 to 2013, 11, 12 years of kind of over-servicing, undercharging, being everything to everyone, still trying to work out who I was. And my purpose came when I surrendered. And I'm going to talk about this in small business terms. It's almost like I kind of was like, by 2012, I was making good money. I had a very profitable business. I only had three staff. I couldn't work out how to scale and I was comfortable. And I was quite frankly, a little bit bored. It was like going through the motions. And so for me, I kind of got to a point where I was like, I'm just going to surrender. And I asked, this is a spiritual part of me. I was like, okay, I am ready for something big, whatever it is. If my purpose is cleaning toilets in India, then give it to me. And I will do it with every part of dedication. And It just like literally dropped in overnight when I got really just like, okay, I'm ready for something bigger. And my purpose became, you know, I was just like, wow, I've been an entrepreneur for such a long time. I'm surrounded by so many extraordinary thought leaders, you know, game changers. Why don't I, rather than do like put out these one dimensional books dealing with one person at a time, why don't I bring them all together into the format of a magazine? And really my purpose there was I want to tell extraordinary stories and share the voices of amazing people and tell the story behind the story and the raw and the real and the vulnerable and the authentic because so much of what was happening in the world at the time and still is to a degree was you just hear the surface level stuff. Why is Andy amazing? Well, this is why, you know, and you don't dig as you are now. And I wanted that to then, you know, inspire and educate other people. So what's important about purpose is that I would say for me, it's three words, igniting human potential, and then if I unpack or purpose as opposed to the business one, it's to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing that anything's possible. That is as simple or as complex as my purpose gets. And we'll talk later about platform. But from there, when I have that, it becomes around a feeling as opposed to a delivery mechanism. So it actually doesn't matter if I'm writing a book or doing a podcast or a speaking gig or a number of other things. Feeling rather than a delivery mechanism. Explain. Yes. Great. Thank you. Because now I want to get to 
for people. And I talk a lot to corporates about this and to small businesses. So I think so many people, when they start a business, they think, what have I got in front of me? A coffee cup. They're like, oh, I'm going to develop a coffee cup. But then it becomes about the product as opposed to the feeling. And the problem is if everyone suddenly decides, well, actually, I'm not going to drink out of a coffee cup because the new cool thing is this, then you no longer have a business. But if it's about a feeling, I want to develop an extraordinary drinking vessel or I want people to feel this, then suddenly you're able to morph, pivot, iterate, change, and it becomes less about the product. So we can dig down into this about future-proofing your business and what I've done as a result of COVID and being able to, you know, pendulate between platforms. But in terms of finding purpose, I would say there's essentially three things. Firstly, feel into what it is that excites you, juices you up, makes you want to jump out of bed every morning. You know, that feeling you're just like, oh my gosh, I just love this. Like, what is that? And Really, I would encourage anyone to just feel into that. It might be the wackiest thing. You might be like, oh my gosh, that happens when blah, and it's unexpected. But feel into that, play with it. Do what I call is an idea soup. Write everything down. These are all the things I love. And then start to go, wow, there's a whole lot there. The second thing is start to listen to that external validation for a while. Like when people are like, oh my gosh, Andy, you just bring so much energy. You're such a great speaker. You're really buffed and motivated. Like whatever the thing is you hear. Are you reading that text message I sent you and said, when we get to purpose point two, I'm blushing, keep going, stop it. So you start listening and you'll start to hear these things, you know, oh, you're a great connector. You're this. And you go, huh, maybe there's something in that. So what juices me up? What are other people saying? And then the third thing is when it comes to business, where's a gap in the market or where is there some potential commercial reality? Because that's like really important, right? Because we can have something that juices us up, makes us feel like we're alive, but maybe it's a great hobby. Maybe it's not our vocation, you know, but I think when you start to meld those three things together, then actually it gets pretty exciting. Love it. And there's a good three-step process as well. And we'll put on show notes where people can find your many books. Now, when I interview someone, and the wizard knows this, if they've written a book, I bring it in. When they've written 26 books and helped self-publish 400, I need a truck to back up. So we're going to put the show notes up to allow those links for everyone. Question on purpose for you. Give me an example when you have lived on purpose, specific to business, something you've said yes to, something you've said no to. It's a great question. So I probably say no to a lot more things than I say yes to. And so this is where I think it's really good and it takes a long time to get to this, but I just, my litmus test every morning is, is this helping me to be an entrepreneur for entrepreneurs, living my life out loud, showing anything's possible? Does it ignite human potential? So what happens is as you become bigger and step more into your purpose or you become more public or whatever the thing is, more and more opportunities come your way. And so you know, people will come to me and be like, let's start a fashion label together or let's, I nearly started a dog brand recently, right? So as an entrepreneur or a business person, an innovator, a big thinker, my immediate reaction is, yes, let's do it. I want to say yes to everything, right? So I need to catch myself and I go, quick litmus test, does that ignite? So dog brand, does that, you love dogs, you got a beautiful dog. So did you run the litmus test over that? I did. But to be honest, and we can talk about that, it took me $55,000 to say no to that one. Like I literally spent $55,000 on going down a track of developing that. That was a longer 
a longer no than yes. And then suddenly I was like, what am I doing? I don't want to do this. It's got nothing to do with me. I mean, that was a slow burn and that was for a few different reasons. But more often than not, it's just a quick no, no, thank you. And actually, I've just written an entire chapter for a new book on the art of saying no. So I can give you a whole lot of ways to say no and a whole lot of ways to say yes, but or no, but. So anyway, we can come to that. In terms of the yeses, um, I try to feel into things and go, is this serving my purpose? Is this making me feel good and alive? Is this serving my community? And if so, and does it have some commercial reality? Then it's a hell yes, you know, but we only have so many hours in the day and it's very easy as we started off talking about to be pulled in a lot of different directions. There are a lot of energy vampires, energy sappers out there. Two of the words I use the most are value exchange, you know, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? Is it going to work? And that can be an energetic exchange, a monetary exchange, a time exchange. It can be a number of different things. I'm very big on collaborations, but um, you'll know, you know, it's again, I call it a flow state as opposed to walking through mud. I think when you say yes, and it's meant to be, it just the synchronicity and the serendipity, it just kind of work, you know, this things start happening and you're like, whoa, wow, this is great. Even when it's hard, it's kind of a path of least resistance. It just kind of works. Whereas I know when I say yes to something and it's hard, sometimes it's better to, you know, suck up your pride, ego, whatever it is, and actually turn around and say, you know what, this isn't feeling right for me. This is actually difficult and it's blocking energy about where, you know, that I should be spending elsewhere. And so important as you build your platform, the next P, and you get more exposure to people, you're going to get asked more and more and more. So I think having that clearly articulated purpose, and I do that myself, Lisa, is is this living on my purpose? Is this going to help what I'm doing and my business and my colleagues and my family? And then pretty quickly you get that clear delineation. Yeah, it's going to be additive to this or it's actually going to take energy away. So on platforms, can you talk to me about platforms on three levels? The first is someone who's listening to this who does not have a digital presence. They're just starting. What should they do? What are the two or three things? Talking to someone mid-range, they've had a website. They may have set it up five years ago. They paid a developer $15,000. wasn't on WordPress. You couldn't get in back end. And every time you wanted to upload something, it cost you $1,000. So you're someone who needs to make that shift. And then someone like you, if you had someone listening to this who's got a big social media presence, what can they do to go to the next level? So you're happy with that? Starting out mid-range and then super advanced. What's next? How can you fire it up? Yeah, really happy. And yeah, so it all goes back to purpose and it goes back to leverage as well. So, and through COVID, we've seen this a lot. And I've spoken to a lot of people who, you know, have traditional bricks and mortar businesses and have no digital footprint. And that becomes, you know, tricky in and of itself because already you're dealing with potential cash flow issues and you know, uh, supply chain issues and there's all sorts of other things going on. And then suddenly thrown into the mix, you're like, oh my gosh, I have to learn about new technology so I can digitize my offering. I need to get on social media. You might need to set up a website, set up, a, set up Shopify, and that can become, you know, quite overwhelming. So yeah, if you're just starting out, I think it's important to try and have some kind of digital presence, but again, try and focus. So try and think about what are you trying to achieve? 
what's the end result you're going for and what's the fastest way to market? So is it that, you know, Instagram is going to work best for you? We could unpack this for days. <laughs> so out of all of your books, because it's like we could talk for hours and we need to get you back again and we'll get into this stuff deeper. But out of all your books, have you got something that will help someone who is just starting? Yes, I do. So it's called the The Ultimate Guide to Social Media Marketing. It's a journal which I've put out, which has got every single thing in there about social media and digital marketing, because it's really, really important. Yeah. So when you're starting out, I think, you know, really important to have some kind of online presence. The fastest way to grow that is to find some people to collaborate with, whether they're corporates or influencers. And I'll just, I will unpack it a little bit because it is important. So I always go like this. If you go through the alphabet, I did this with you when we were writing your book, you know, airlines, automotive, just think about the different industries that could align with you. And then literally just pick three potential partners. Because here's the thing, when I launched my magazine, that was a small business. I had three staff. I knew nothing about magazines. I was entering an industry that was highly saturated. People said print was dead or dying. And I really didn't have a lot of money behind me. So everything was stacked against me. What I did was Rather than think about just monetary partnerships, I actually thought about who are like-minded, non-competing partners. So Xero, so the software, was one of my partners back then because they had a database, I think, of something like 800,000 small businesses, right? So anyone starting out can think about this. Again, value exchange. What can I offer Xero? Hey, Xero, can I write you some blogs for free or can I do whatever for free? In exchange, can you help amplify my small business and let your audience know about me? So that's a really simple way to do it. Just really believe in yourself and then think about who can I partner with who can help to amplify my brand digitally rather than thinking about, oh my gosh, I've got to build my own website, my own Instagram following. Just think about who can I tap into? What can I offer them and what can they offer me? That's simple. Love that because I think a lot of people get scared or they look at Instagram and go, you know, Sarah and Jess and Mike have 1 million followers. I've got to get everything on Instagram. But what you're saying is, no, 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 before you do that, who are the like-minded people? Love it. So I think things like that as a real startup, because the thing is, I think we think we need to do everything ourselves. And actually, if you can just think, what's the quickest way to market? And I'll just give another example there. Some time ago, I dealt with someone who said, my target market is general practitioners. And I said, doctors. And I said, oh, great. How are you going to get to them? And they went, well, I'm going to, you know, call every single one or connect with every single one individually. And I just said, no, surely there's the General Practitioners Association of Australia. So try and go one point, have a great relationship with them and let that one point do the work for you. And this is where I think, you know, again, coming back to money in and of itself isn't the only currency. If you can actually believe in yourself enough and have a good enough offering, and that doesn't matter if you're a candle maker or, you know, the pizza joint or whatever it is, if you can get someone else to believe in you and amplify your message, it's really, really important. Do you want me to give a few examples quickly about digitization for slightly larger bricks and mortar businesses or how are we going for time? Yeah, I think you've, well, I've got as long as you have. So uh, <laughs> this might be the world's longest podcast. You've got so much amazing content. I think you've really covered base entry and it's not about going to the platform. That's been a real learning for me, Liz, is who do you know? I remember you doing that with me going, I would have made even, I thought, what are you doing? You did it on your whiteboard in Surrey Hills. So you're leveraging the people you know, and then you're using that to go on their networks rather than coming up with your 
Ryan? Because a lot of people are, how do I find other people that can create so much stress? Can you pull out your mobile phone for me? Yes. I feel like, I don't know if you want to ask you. I don't want to look at that. It's very busy. (laughs) I can also talk a little bit about my platform and how I leverage between print, digital and events if you want. But yes, the mobile phone is out and it's a little bit hectic, I got to say. I think this question is going to lead into that. So it might be a nice segue. Can you just do a search on your phone and type in these following names? Can you type in Richard Branson? <laughs> I can. Yes, yes. <laughs> Can you type in Natalie Bassingthwaite? Can you type in Megan Gale? Can you type in Lewis Howes, one of the all-time leading podcasters? And you are on his show and he's been on your show. Can you type in Bradley Trevor Grieve? I think Bradley, or BTG as you affectionately call him, has sold over 20 million books. The voice of Nemo. Can you type in Gabby Byrne? The list goes on. So the question I've got for you, these are all your friends. These are all people you hang out with. They're all in there. So let's hope I don't lose this bad boy. <laughs> and I, I'm sure there's a whole lot more, right? So when you get to a level like you are, how do you leverage people like this? And I think there's a learning in this for other people. Oh, if they've got a book or they've got a product launch or something, because a lot of well-known people get lots of people contact them and they normally say no. How have you built up that network? And then we'll get onto how you've done digital and everything else around it. So I'm going to use... This Richard Branson story, because I think it really demonstrates this well. People, and I could demonstrate it in a million different ways, people are really, really busy, right? So again, I've talked about this through our chat, value exchange. And business is a dance. At the beginning, it's about much more about what's in it for them. You know, like stack it, give them 200 things for the one thing that you're asking. So the reason that I have such a strong relationship with Richard Branson now is this. I was invited to go to Necker Island in November 2014. So a long time before anyone kind of much went there and it was extraordinary. And I can talk about all of that. But what's important about that is I'd never met Richard at the time. There was 28 entrepreneurs that got invited to go and we all got an opportunity for 10 minutes to pitch to Rich. And I watched, and this is a very good example of what I've seen play out in life over and over and over again. I watched as 27 people essentially asked him things that were impossible for him to say yes to. They said things like, hey, I'm Andy and I've got this incredible podcast, you know, can I rename it Virgin, whatever, 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 right? He can't say yes. He's never met you. He's never listened to your podcast. There's over 400 Virgin companies. Most of them are licensing deals. Every single thing I watched was impossible for him to say yes to. So I thought on the spot, because I'd over-engineered it before I got there, oh my God, I'm going to pitch something really big. You know what I did? I just said, hey, Richard, can I send you a box of my magazine every month? That's it. Finish. So of course he goes, yes, of course you can. Now I'm not stupid. I know the likes of Beyonce and everyone else who turn up to NECA, right? But I also know that all of his staff and Richard would be seeing that magazine come every single month. So I, from there, built a really good relationship with his PA, Helen, who's been with him for years. We're great friends. And I said, hey, Helen, would Richard consider writing me a testimonial for the front cover of my book, Life and Love, which I'd finished writing on NECA? And so she's like, of course. Anyway, so I kept saying, how can I help Richard in Australia? You know, what can I do for him genuinely rather than, and then, um, I knew he was coming to Australia the next year and I said, oh, so I emailed Helen and I said, oh, hey, you know, could I shoot Richard for a cover of my magazine? And she goes, "Um, yeah, great. She goes, oh, actually, by the way, would you consider co-chairing the Virgin Way conference with Richard? (laughs) So there I am on stage with Richard. You know, I'd read his book 
20 years before something, you know, it took a long time and a lot of me doing things for him. And then we did that and we were meant to shoot the cover for the magazine in the Botanic Gardens afterwards. And then they were like, oh, he's kind of busy. He's going to go up to make Peace Island, his island on the Noosa River um, in Queensland for the weekend. Hey, do you want to come up there for the weekend with him and shoot the cover? And it was really there that I became, you know, friends with him because I was there with just some of his close family members. But the thing is, make it easy to say yes. And having owned a magazine and, you know, global media for quite a while now, we've done over 6,000 stories. And every single day people pitch, 99% of pitches would be, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. If someone comes to me and says, hey, I think this would be really useful for your community. I feel like it would sit into this section really well. And what can I do for you? Oh my God. I'm like, you're in every single time. It's a yes. But so few people make it easy for us to say yes, you know? So I think for me, it's all about relationships. It's all about thinking about that person more. Don't underestimate the power of handwritten notes, you know, in a digital economy, you know, notice what people are doing, send them a note. Hey, wow. I just saw you got a promotion or wow. Well done on your latest book, you know? acknowledge people and you know it's like a favors bag do a million favors for them and ask for one thing in return you know people notice that kind of thing just sort of unpack what you've done and then we've got to get on to publishing the next page we're going to come back it's not the platform itself it's how you get your message clear align to your purpose connect with people value exchange build that relationship and from little things. One of my favourite songs is Paul Kelly, the Australian artist, from little things, big things grow. Pitch to rich, here's a box of magazines. It sounds like he was a bit dumbfounded in a nice way. Here's this vibrant, sassy woman who hasn't pitched him. Rich, I'll just give you some magazines and bang, it's gone to a big relationship opening up doors for you all around the world. Very clever. Simplicity, you know, I really think I'm – still astounded by the amount of people who like still, even though, you know, still on a daily basis, people are like, Hey, can you do this for me? And I'm like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. I never heard of you. I don't, but make it easy for me. You know, people don't make it easy for you to say yes. We want to say yes. (laughs) Let's make it easy for people to understand a little bit more about publishing. I'm going to divide this into two. There's a question I want to ask you about Collective Hub that I haven't had the opportunity to ask, and you said to ask anything, so we're going to get to that. First of all, why should everybody write a book? Words you said to me back in 2006, it would have been 2007. Why should everyone write a book? <laughs> so, oh, yeah. Now it's funny, my fiancé, Stephen, like every day, he's like, why do you say that? There's enough ridiculous books in the world. But the reason is this, I think, you know, back then I would say, don't think $30 book, think $30,000 client. You know, a book is an extraordinary, you know, way to connect with people, to put your messaging out there, you know, but you really need to look at, is it a legacy piece? Is it to inspire? Is it, you know, to, there's a whole lot of reasons for writing a book. I mean, I have completely fallen in love with the process. For me, I find it very cathartic. I'm like, whatever I'm going through, I'm like, oh, it becomes gamified for me. Like when I broke my office. So after 17 years of bricks and mortar, I decentralized my office in April 2018 before everyone had to work from home. And uh, that was at the time a brave and courageous thing to do. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book called Work From Wherever. And so it almost gave me an opportunity to go, okay, I'm going to make this work for myself. And as I do it, I'm going to teach other people along the way. My previous book was called Risk and Resilience When I Nearly Lost 
everything. You know, I grew too fast. I didn't have the right systems and processes in place. I was a great, you know. Can I just say working from home or work from home in 2019 before COVID hit, like did you have some knowledge that we didn't? (laughs) Well, well, finally enough, risk and resilience and work from wherever since COVID have become like off the charts bestsellers. Pretty good IP to have. Well, it just shows if you do the hard work and you're in the right place, opportunities abound, right? So it was interesting, Cara, our producer, when she spoke to you and she said, how many books have you written? You went, oh, I don't know, it's 20-something. So she had to do the research. I can tell you, you've written 26. When you have to tell someone you're interviewing how many books they've written, they've written a lot. But here's <laughs> something else I know. Your first 10 books did okay, not great. Probably the first 18, no one really read. <laughs> Question yeah. for you, Lise. Most people would write a book. It's hard. Like books are bloody hard. Rewarding, but it's hard. You know, you start, woohoo, and then you get away and write wherever you are, and then the work starts. And a lot of people tap out early. So 18 books. And if it was that hard, and you told me about English, and you know, maybe there was a bit of a chip there. In psychology, we call that drive, you know, stuff you all, I'm going to prove this. But why did you just keep going? What was the burning desire to just to write it. Like you love it, get it. It's aligned to your purpose, get it. But to write that many books until it really takes off, you're either a masochist or there's something I don't know. So, I mean, here's some of the ones I wrote that no one ever much read. So when I learnt to surf, 12, probably about the same time I published your book, I decided, oh, there's no books out there. So I'll like, again, learn to surf and I will write a book on it as I go. So then I contacted Lane Beachley and Barton Lynch and they helped me. For me, I think it's been an extraordinary exploration into different subjects. And so it's almost like I love the process because I throw myself into learning something that actually I don't know a lot about. And as I'm learning, I write about it, right? So what I write is very much from a self-deprecating, this is where I started. I had no idea how to do this, like any subject. This is what I learned. And here are the lessons I'm going to share them with you. So for me, I love it because aligned with my purpose, you know, the part of living my life out loud, it keeps me exploring. It keeps me fresh. It keeps me whenever I get, you know, a little bit bored or whatever. It's like I'm always seeking. So that's a beautiful piece. The second piece now that people actually do read them (laughs) is that people, what I get all the time is people say all the time, every day across every platform, oh my God, I feel like you're me. And the beautiful thing about that is because I write and there's nothing off limits at all, like whether it's financial stuff I'm going through, you know, any hardships, anything else, and I tell it exactly like it is as I'm going through it, people are like, oh my gosh, it's so relatable and it becomes attainable. And so now I get so much joy in the process, but also in seeing the impact that it is having on so many people because I'm just telling it how it is. So I just love the process. Why I did so many before it really actually worked, I don't know. (laughs) Well, it gave you an absolute foundation to write a book on resilience and to come from the heart and be authentic. Now we're doing a podcast, but we're also doing a video cast we're using Zoom. you got a background. It looks like an office, but I know you have not got the same model, which we're going to get to as well. Do you mind if we go unplug? Can you turn off your background for a moment? Yeah, let's unplug. So by the way, the office behind me was my last 
physical bricks and mortar office, 600 square meters penthouse in Surrey Hills cost me over 350 grand a year. So I like that I have the background now that I no longer pay rent (laughs) and that I still get to use it. So it's a little bit of tongue in cheek right there, but this is my- um, So that Zoom backdrop is saving you 350 grand a year. There's a a lot of ways you can channel that money. Oh, and if we want to dig into, you know, productivity and efficiencies since I've actually decentralized everything, we can go there as well. And um, this is my third bedroom. So it's uh, that is my brain on a plate. That's my beautiful outdoor nature outside. So that's me. <laughs> so if anyone listening, you've got to go to the video cast on this and look, it's visual, beautiful. It's like a backstage pass behind the scenes. <laughs> so what is behind the scenes? It's, it's a pin board. Is this the next book? So I'm also, you know, however successful I'm, you are in life, there are really inexpensive ways to do things. So behind me are six boards. They're essentially soundproofing material from Bunnings, 30 bucks each. And then it is literally a whole lot of my existing books and some inspiration torn out. And it's just covered in a big wall. You can jump onto my Instagram, Lisa Messenger, and there's a a way that we made that. But yeah, in front of me, I have Besser blocks from Bunnings, three bucks each and a little desktop. So there's really, you know, fun, inexpensive hacks that you can do to create a home office. Oh, Lisa, I can't start a podcasting studio. I can't you know, write a book because I don't have the platform and I don't have the money. Go to Bunnings, get a sausage sanger and some onions and tomato sauce. That's all you get, right? They've tried to change it in some areas in Bunnings. They said, no, you have white bread, sausage, tomato sauce, onion. That's it. But make it simple. That's one of the things I'm loving about unpicking today with you, Lisa. You're not overcomplicating stuff. And despite the success you've had, you've got a Bunnings board and some Besser blocks. Love it. Are you sponsored by Bunnings? Are we getting a no, hashtag Bunnings on I this? Never, no, I have never had any monetary partnership with Bunnings, but if they're listening, send some my way. <laughs> and Andy, you know, I think it's really important because um, coming back to success, success for me isn't better, brighter, more beautiful things. You know, actually the creativity in my office and the simplicity of it and going into Bunnings myself with a friend and, you know, getting creative is so much more fun for me than going and spending a couple of grand on something flash. Like sometimes it's in the process of doing something and sometimes it's, you know, having small budgets. In fact, when I've run workshops and things for corporates, (laughs) much to their shock. Sometimes I've said, okay, you have no money. Pretend you have absolutely zero dollars. And they all kind of go, oh my God, oh my God, but I have all these campaigns planned across all these different mediums and all these platforms and how are we possibly, but when you strip it back and you make people think about how can I do more with less and how can I start being creative and innovative, that's when it gets exciting, you know? I've got one more question on publishing. And for those people who want to find out about what was the inspiration and it was an amazing story, Google Lisa Messenger plus publishing or collective hub. It's a wonderful story, but I want to go to the end of that story with permission to ask a raw question. Anytime. 37 countries. I caught up with you at KPMG a couple of years ago. I think you just caught up with a mutual buddy of ours, Andy Lark, creative, crazy off the charts, creative guy. And at that stage, you were talking about looking at selling. There was a bit of interest. Why did you stop? I've been wanting to ask you this. Like, amazing success. Yeah. Why did it stop? 
really important question. Thank you. So people say to me, what's the most courageous thing you've ever done? And it's twofold. One is having the courage to start Collective Hub, you know, highly saturated industry, blah, 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 all the stuff I said, but also having the courage in equal measure to break it at its peak in 2018. And the reason is this, I started saying before, I'm a great founder, like I'm a brilliant founder. I'm a great innovator, great at seeing things before it exists, great problem solver comes from asking why. I see, you know, solutions everywhere. You know, there are many things I'm great at. I'm actually not a great CEO and I am terrible at detail and operationally when it comes to, you know, Finance, I love now. I'm very, very intimate with my data. I think as a creative, it is the single most important thing in a business, pretty much. But it doesn't come naturally. And, you know, technology, HR, IT, legal, can't stand. Risk, compliance. Yeah. So I go from three staff. Within 18 months, I've got 34 full-time staff, which isn't a lot, but as a small business owner, it's relative, $3.5 million in fixed salaries. Only three of the 34 staff were writers or a commissioning editor. All of the rest of my team were freelance. And so we were very heavy and we grew too quickly and I didn't have the right systems and processes in place to support that growth and let this be a a word of warning to people. Bigger isn't always better. You know, I think as business owners, we always dream we want to have this big thing. So from a brand perspective, suddenly, you know, I get this email from Anna Wintour in New York one day, about 18 months in. Anna Wintour is the devil wears Prada, Anna, (laughs) made famous through that, more famous through that movie. She pretty much the doyen of publishing globally. I mean, I thought it was a joke. Anna Winter would like to meet with you in New York. I flew to New York. Like Collective Hub was on the radar of a lot. So you went to New York. You met with Anna. Yes. Oh, we should unpack that as well. But my point around this is I was the only person in Australia to have Jamie Oliver on the cover. You know, I met with him. Richard Branson and I became great friends. John Cleese and I sat down. Like I had this little black book of everything and Collective Hub, everyone was talking about. So the brand was extraordinary and growing, I was the problem. I hadn't set up the right infrastructure systems processes and operationally, and so we were hemorrhaging cash. I was spending money on the wrong things. I took my eye off the ball in terms of data, had the wrong kind of measurements in place. And so I decided to break the very thing that I started because sometimes that's the most courageous thing to do, particularly as And this comes back to purpose. You know, what's my purpose? To ignite human potential. Can I do that when I'm lying on the bathroom floor crying every single night going, how am I going to make this? I would turn up to work every day. My CFO, my chief financial officer would say every day, we need another hundred grand. And I was like, what? And I'm just dialing for dollars. And when you're in that mud state, not state of flow. I can see it when you tell the story. Your shoulders have gone up. Did you feel the change? Yeah. You've lost the I feel it. free lease, <laughs> you know, the, the spiritual yeah. warrior. This is visceral, right? You can still stressful. It's the cortisol. So I decided the only way for me to truly stay on purpose and serve was to cut the absolute guts out of my business. So for the first time in 17 years, I had to make people redundant. You know, I had to make some really brave decisions. I announced the closure of the print magazine. But the thing about that is I told people exactly why I was doing what I was doing, my narrative. And so as a result, what happened was extraordinary. Like 
overnight people like fell more in love with the brand and what I was doing and I think it almost gave permission for other people Sarah Wilson um, who had I Quit Sugar she then shortly after decided to you know close that Samantha Wills had you know her jewelry brand for 12 years she decided to close that Jill Stavana from Star Runner you know they were going through issues so it actually in me being courageous enough to say we're at our peak but actually it's not working from a business perspective and I can't keep going like this. It's not sustainable um, and we're going to collapse. So it almost, by me being courageous enough to cut the guts out of it and allow myself to stop and reimagine and recalibrate, it almost gave other people permission. And I think, you know, with small business, I hear this actually all day, every day and big business for that matter. You've got to stay true to your purpose, but you've got to be able to morph, iterate, change as the markets and the economy and, you know, people, communities change. You've got to be able to change and become detached from specific platform and delivery mechanism. And also if it's not working, sometimes you've got to like cut the guts out of it and start again. Really important. You know, in performance psychology and sports psychology, there's two definitions of mental toughness. Most people have that's pushed through and she ran the marathon and staggered over the line. You see some of those people, they get what's called acromegaly where they literally waste muscle. Some of those people are never the same again. So that's not mental toughness. But mental toughness, I'm pushing through. So 18 books and they sold a lot more. You're a humble woman. But, you know, 18 books until you have the real breakout, work, 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 all the AA stuff, that's mental toughness. The other side is when you actually get to a stage and you go, right, I'm going to break this, stop this, go a different angle and let go. A lot of small business owners, Lisa, find that really hard because of investment. I've invested 10, 15, 20 years. I'll just give it another six months. So it is very brave. Why did you not sell? Did Anna Wintour, you may have signed a non-binding indicative offer and you can't say this on this podcast, but did you have any offers? Did you think about setting it up to sell or were you so caught in the moment that you didn't have an exit strategy? No, I did think about selling and even thinking back to that thought breaks my heart and I'm so glad in hindsight I didn't. But what happened was, and this is ego, within the first few years, I thought, oh, this is worth like at least 30 mil. They wouldn't take a cent under. And to be honest, I wouldn't have sold it because it's my passion and it's like what I've worked my whole life for, you know. But I did get to a point in 2017 where I actually engaged um, some guys to actually look at selling for me. And that was a really hard decision because it was like, I never wanted to sell it. I was like, this is the greatest expression of everything that I've worked my whole life for. But why I made a decision that I would consider selling was that I thought Collective Hub is such a legacy piece and has, you know, millions of, you know, followers and people who are engaged with the brand. If I'm not the right person to be at the helm anymore, then perhaps it's better off selling it to a custodian who can actually take it to the levels that it needs to go to. The problem was that by the time I'd made that decision, really the books were looking so bad and, uh, you know, that no one would really consider buying it. This is a blessing in disguise, like the greatest blessing in disguise, by the way. In the end, I did get an offer for around 10 mil, which was pretty amazing, but it went like this. And it was to a very big publisher in this country. Um, and they basically said, oh, I think we can find somewhere 
kind of squash it into our stable and we'll need you for four years and it's a big corporate. And I was like, the thought of my beautiful brand being squashed into some corporate beige boardroom and me being yeah handcuffed for four years. And so- Did you not think though, $10 million, okay, let's take that now, invest that money, do the four years. No, I didn't. No money in the world. And that was actually- the greatest moment for me because at that point I'd lost a lot of money. I'd sold two properties because, you know, when my business was doing well before I'd bought a number of different properties and luckily I'd invested well and I decided to sell two to sort of bridge the gap. And unfortunately, you know, through my own fault, got completely sucked into the business. But no, at that point I was like, no, I can't do it. I just cannot sell myself for four years because life is short, right? Time is the only finite resource. I'm being provocative. I, I would have done the same <laughs> thing. You know, I've built and sold a few businesses and you've got to know what you're in for. No, it's a really important point because I believe truly wholeheartedly that we are here. We've got to enjoy what we're doing. And so that was a great moment for me. Take that money and be handcuffed for four years. No, because I know within myself 100% and now I've got the good shivers is that when you've tasted success and you know what being in flow and on purpose is like, I knew in that moment I don't feel great right now. In fact, I feel like the worst I've ever felt, but I know that I can rebuild. And so I decided to walk away with nothing, having lost a lot of money. And this is the thing, isn't it, in life? This is what makes or breaks. There are people at that point and still people are like, oh my God, how do you live with yourself? I'm like, it's just money. I know how to make money. It's a currency. Now I have so many lessons. And now that's why I say data and finances are like an absolute imperative. I have daily hourly pulse checks about every single facet of my business. Like it is probably the singular most important thing just to ensure I never get myself in that situation again. And I build in a much more robust, sustainable, the right data orientated implementers around me, you know? You know, it's called the creative curse. And look at this story. It's happened to lots of creatives. So the creative is the rule challenger, the renegade, everything that you are. But with the creative comes the commercial. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's getting that real balance, especially in a lot of the stuff we're talking about, publishing, writing books, platforms and everything else. Did you ever think about stepping aside and bringing in a CEO, a commercial officer, someone that could just say, okay, just fly, go yeah. connect with insert name here yeah. and we'll take care of business? Did you ever think about that? I did. I brought in a CFO and I brought in a COO. My CFO was on 170 grand. My COO was on 250 grand. And really the business couldn't sustain that at the time. And also I made poor judgments in some of my hiring choices at the time. And the thing is, as a small business owner, I believe we need to be the brand architect and we need to understand to some degree at a grassroots level, exactly what the various functionalities of the business are. Because what I did was the, an actual fact, the print magazine was absolutely flying and doing really well and was really profitable. And the events part of the business flying, doing really well, really profitable. Where I took my eye off the ball was actually the, the digital parts. So we built a very comprehensive digital platform. And we were doing eight stories a day as paying writers, $350 to $500 a story. And we were measuring the wrong 
data metrics. We were measuring eyeballs as opposed to revenue against that particular part of the business. And I let other people run that and I didn't understand the intricacies of the digital part and that's where it fell down. So what I would say is absolutely hire your weaknesses and hire those people to supplement your weaknesses, but also you need to have an understanding of actually what they're doing and what you're aiming for. So interestingly now, I work from my third bedroom or wherever I happen to be, a cafe, wherever. My entire staff are decentralized. I have no full-time employees. I have an EA. I have like a lot of different, I have a bigger team than I've ever had. But the interesting thing is now the business is much more productive, much more efficient. You know, I've totally utilized technology. So we run everything through, you know, Asana and a number of other digital tools. And the interesting thing is when I was in a physical office, I used to say I'm busy but I'm never productive because all day, every day we're in meetings, I'm putting out fires, I'm reacting. And now I can run as many projects globally, calling on the best of the best of the best. And it's only now as good as my systems and processes, how much output I can have. So the output is much bigger. Our revenue this financial year will surpass what it was at the peak of Collective Hub. And my profit, there is actually profit. (laughs) Well, that's the other one we need to look at, right? And I've had experiences nowhere near as big scale global stuff. But when I've taken my eye off the ball as a business owner, I think two things that we shouldn't get caught up with, two really bad questions actually for a business owner. Number one, how many staff have you got? Now, I've had previous business, had 100 staff. It was like herding cats. We were trying to get, you know, I was a fitness trainer teaching doctors how to implement medical systems. How do you think that went down, Lise? And especially I was a bit more brushed back then. So a fundamentally flawed question to a small business owner, how many staff have you got? And I think the second fundamentally flawed question is what are you earning? What's your revenue? What's your lifestyle like? Are you living on purpose? What's your profit? And it's really interesting, you know, that first 11 years, when I knew you before I launched Collective Hub, I used to be so embarrassed because people would pigeonhole, how many staff do you have? And I used to be so embarrassed saying three staff. Now I'm really proud saying I have no staff. (laughs) I have a lot of people working for me, but it's much more streamlined and much more efficient. And so, you know, that was my ego. That was my sense of identity. That was, you know, living life according to other people's expectations of what success meant. And actually this is a much, much more sustainable robust, healthier way. My team, I mean, I spoke in Tokyo and, you know, alongside, I was being translated into Korean and Japanese. And I spoke alongside a a very astute professor in Tokyo who was teaching the theory of the future of work at the time. And I said to him in, in front of all these people, you know, well, actually, I don't mind if my team go to the beach in the middle of the day or do yoga or work out or pick their kids up from school or if they feel like working at four in the morning. So that's taken me a long time to get comfortable with that. But now it's all about output and productivity dependent on tasks as opposed to time in office and bums on seats. And I think that's something that the world has now caught up with (laughs) and we're all having to adapt to that new way of working. We had to with COVID, with WFH working from home, but I hope you stood up in front of that beautiful Japanese audience and challenged them because they have a word called Kuroshi, which means literally working yourself to death. So you've got this flamboyant Australian there saying, hello, I'm Lisa Messenger. I'm living on purpose. I've got no staff. (laughs) I've got a highly profitable, engaged, digital enabled business. And I also have a podcast, which is smashing it. I've been listening to the interviews, not just in preparation for today. I genuinely listen to your podcast like Lewis 
Chris Howes, Bradley Trevor Grief, a lot of those names I got before. So let's go to podcasting. We could talk about publishing and platforms. We've got to get you back. But <laughs> why did you finally get into podcasting? I didn't want to do it. People kept saying to me for the longest time, you should start a podcast. And I was like, I don't want to for so many reasons. One, and this still hurts me greatly, is that through the magazine, you know, we've interviewed the best of the best around the world, but I never caught any of it audibly. So like, I was like, oh, do I have to start from scratch again with all these extraordinary people that I've connected with? So I kind of fought it for ages. And then I thought, gosh, it's actually a beautiful thing to connect with people. And I do have such an extraordinary, you know, little black book of amazing people. And I just thought, well, why don't I just have real conversations and share that with people? And I've actually loved the process of it. It's been, um, yeah, it's been really you're in flow. I can hear when you're doing it. You're having fun. If it's some of your your girlfriends, you're giggling. It's just like a normal conversation. It's not scripted. It's not yeah. overproduced. It's raw. Much like this. And you'll have to be on my podcast soon for sure. Would love to. So on podcasting, what's a good podcast question or what makes a good podcast? Do you know, I think what's interesting is when you and I've had to learn it, you know, like I'm not a trained journalist or a trained podcaster, but what I am is inquisitive. I think it's what you said before, which is why I asked you to go deeper and disarm me if you felt at any time that I was answering something in a way that I've learned to answer. And it was interesting. I won't say who it was, but I had someone on there who is actually a very proficient, extraordinary speaker. And I know every time he gets up on stage, he, you know, everyone cries every single time he has a standing ovation. And as I was interviewing him on my podcast, even though I was asking deep, raw questions, I could tell he was giving me the stuff, you know? Press play, press play, press play. Yeah. And so I think what makes a good interview, I hope, I mean, I still have a lot to learn is actually, and you've been doing it brilliantly, is actually trying to dig under that and be like, because we all, the more we do something, you kind of- What do you mean by that? (laughs) You would. No, no. But I I wish, but that's why I'm like to you- Dig deeper because I think that's what makes a good one. You would be interviewed on a lot of podcasts. I'm fortunate to be interviewed on a lot of podcasts. And there are some people who literally just read, here's the next question, here's the next question, and then don't pull at anything. In fact, I interviewed our mate, I think also your mate, Cohen Ray, amazing guy, and I listened to something that had been done with him previously and I listened to an interview with him and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. The interviewer actually said, something, something, something. And then he said, oh, yeah, my I think my stepfather died when I was nine. I shouldn't even acknowledge that. She just asked the next question. I was like, could I have even heard that right? You know, like I think that you've got to keep pulling and keep exploring and keep seeking. You know, Kerwin doesn't do any, well, he does. He's been doing years of work on himself and on stage and running a great events business. He doesn't have a run sheet. He doesn't have a script. He listens. And I like I found that challenging yet stimulating that he just asks questions. And when you hear him ask good questions and I hear other podcasters, everyone's got different formats. But yeah, so going deeper, not scripted is what's a good podcast. What's a bad podcast? Yeah. And also on that, I don't script a lot. And when people's PRs or PAs will ask me before, can you send a list of questions? I actually refuse. Then they're not the right person necessarily for me because I like to go with threads and see where it goes. What's a bad podcaster? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. Or what's bad podcast or a bad podcast question apart from the obvious? Or a bad question in life really is I think just continuing with 
the next train of thought that is scripted and not being inquisitive. I think that goes for everything from schooling when people are asking why. Don't just give them the same old convergent way of doing things. Or, you know, I think it's just being inquisitive about anything. On that, it's extraordinary with the print mag, how many people would pitch to me, you know, as I was saying before, can you run this story? And I'd always say, tell me the history, tell me what your brand stands for. And more often than not, people couldn't even answer that. They didn't know what the root of their company was. What can I do to improve in future podcasts? (laughs) Well, no, you're amazing. I think you really pull a lot of different things and you really try and ask the deeper, more raw questions. Interestingly, have you had any challenges when you go, are there people that you interview who just don't want to go certain places? Yeah, I have. Mm. And I won't mention names, but I've had a couple of people that have gone and I've, we know each other, work and outside of work. So there's a connection, there's a trust there, but you still have to ask. And I've, I've done that on two come to mind. And at the start of the interview, I said, look, I'd like to go a bit deeper here because I've read stuff in the media and I've seen this, this, this. I'd actually like to know a little bit more. One of the people said, yeah, that's fine. The other person said, yeah, we'll, we'll just see how I feel at that stage. And I thought, oh, I'll still go with it. And I got a block on both of them. One of them, it's a real block. Mm-hmm. We've, we've actually edited that bit out because it just sounds, you can hear crickets, you can hear tumbleweed. <sighs> which is a shame because yeah. I think it would have given that person a real opportunity to show a different side to them. And I think particularly those of us who are fortunate to be interviewed a lot, I think what makes a good podcaster is yet finding different angles and also as the person being interviewed to not rehash the same stories. And really it gives me a beautiful opportunity as you're asking me questions to really try and be as authentic and like, what have I learned in those moments? And I think that's the only way we learn and teach and, you know, support each other. You've gone off script a fair bit today or off pissed and I've taken you there a few times. So there's a number of things you've told me today I haven't heard. So thank you. And I I knew you'd be raw. It's your brand, but uh, it's lovely seeing it in action. But really weave throughout this whole interview today. And when we talk about what you're doing as far as your platforms or go way back, your purpose, your platform, publishing and podcast, it's all about future-proofing. It's all about, you know, you said going up and down, weaving with the market as well. So I haven't wanted to just go specifically COVID. That said, what did you change? (laughs) So this is the interesting thing. And in a way, I'm almost fortunate that I nearly lost everything in 2018 because that actually, even though I unfortunately went through that in isolation completely, it really made me think very differently about, okay, when I rebuild, I want to do it in a way that I can move between platforms when needed. My business essentially now is three pillars. It is print, which consists primarily of books, journals, you know, a whole lot of other things, which are tools to inspire and educate. And then it is digital, which is various social media platforms, collectivehub.com, my podcast and, you know, webinars and a whole lot of other pieces and then events. So live events. And, you know, I do a lot of speaking around the world now. So it's interesting, right? A lot of people say speaker friends of ours who only have the speaking piece and they don't have the other pieces that can really hurt, you know, suddenly. Well, it did. A lot of speakers were, you know, seven figure salaries to nothing. Yeah. The majority of your income is 
sitting there. So this is what I've done. So, and I'll be honest, my speaking fee ranges from 12 grand to 30 grand now. So it's nice money, right? Like, and I still go, whoa, people actually pay that. But you suddenly rip a whole lot of that out. And that's a big chunk of change, right? So what I did personally, it was like, well, that hurts. But very quickly, I was like, okay, turn on the print stuff. You know, I only allow myself to go onto your Instagram page twice a month. <laughs> I get tired. And I, I was like, I'm not doing enough. Oh, I've got to get off Collective Hub. I've got to get off. Like it has been, or jokes aside, it's, and hearing that print digital and events, it's real clarity. I can see you've ramped up that part of your business massively. And can I just say something? Because I know you've said the word self-publishing a few times and it's funny because I think there's still um, a stigma associated with the notion of self-publishing. But I just was talking to my CFO yesterday to put that into perspective this financial year, so, um, you know, 1st of July till 1st of July, I will be physically printing over 1.6 million copies of books and journals. So, I mean, it's a fairly robust thing now. So I laugh when people are like, oh, that's sweet, self-publishing, like, oh, you do your own products. I'm like, well, I kind of been doing it for 19 years and we kind of have a fairly like well-oiled machine now. <laughs> can I get rid of the word fairly and put in another F word and you know, our <laughs> listeners and viewers can work out whether it's effing robust, 1.6. It's phenomenal. Yeah. But again, I'll go back to I'm the brand architect. You know, I a lot of the journals I don't write. I come up with the idea, I conceptualize it, I kind of write the top line, and then I have, you know, writers and editors that work with me on those. All my own books I write, but I have an extraordinary team. So that's how I'm able to pump so much stuff out. And what I would say about that quickly is this, I think it's really important is about leverage. And it comes back to your point a little bit about your podcast, but I would say to people, a really clever way in business, when we kind of think, which platform should we be on? You know, gosh, we all have to pump out content. So I'll give you an example. If I write one piece of content, say it was for the magazine, a thousand words, I would, you know, pay someone to write that and edit and whatever else. But that one hour that I would spend with the person, I would then digitize that now, you know, turn that into a podcast or slice and dice it and, you know, a whole lot of other things. So you've got to learn how to leverage that one piece of content and use it across multiple platforms in multiple different ways. Gihan Pereira, who was doing a lot of work with Matt many years ago. Remember Gihan? Shout out to Gihan. We'll have to send him a copy of this because an unsung hero, I think, in a lot of our journeys, the word I always think about in relation to Gihan is spin. If you're going to do a podcast, get the audio, record it, get some media bites, get the transcription, make some quotes. That was Gihan. So thank you, Gihan. Now, Lisa, you've done a lot. There's been some highs and lows and ups and downs and that's life. But when you look at everything and your young life, I reckon we're all going to live to 100, 130 plus. So you're a quarter of the way there. What are you most proud about out of everything, either personal, professional? I think most proud, you know, I I think it really comes down to the simple things and it's probably relationships and, you know, small intimate moments with family and friends and actually being able to show up and be there to support. That's kind of where I felt to go just then in my heart. If I answered it in this sort of adrenaline fueled, I'd be like, oh my God, well, I'm most proud of, you know, like creating this stuff. But actually more often than not, it's the really simple things that I go, 
okay, I've worked on myself. I've tackled a lot of my demons. I maintain a pretty holistic, healthy lifestyle. And I'm able to connect in a way that at one point I look back to my, you know, 20 year old Lisa, I really couldn't, you know, I had no social skills, no emotional intelligence, no semblance of who I was, what my beliefs or my values were. So I think it's really having a solid understanding of who that is. That's probably what I'm most proud of and continuing to show up and do the work consistently. I think that's probably what I'm most proud of. You should be very proud, very proud. Now, can you hold your hands up like this? There's a microphone in front of you for those listening. Can you put your hands over the microphone? Yes. And pretend it's a crystal ball. Oh, yeah. And just make some clairvoyant or crystal ball messages. You could shake the hair, whatever. You, yeah, that's Oh, you've done this before. Wow, <laughs> scaring me. <laughs> People are going to have to watch the video. I think now you're dancing. Crystal oh, you ball. Are dancing? <laughs> I'm not doing double dancing. <laughs> double dance. But crystal ball, what is Collective Hub doing in a couple of years? I don't know. And it's not mine to know. And that's really important because I believe very, very, very much in surrendering to the process. And I also believe in not, the reason is this, if I say this, oh, I'm going to start the magazine and again, and now it'll be entries and I'm going to have this, this and this. I find that very limiting because I believe when you truly stay on purpose and truly know in your heart, like I want to impact as many people and live my life out loud, helping as many people to overcome their own self-sabotage and blockages. If I limit myself by putting a specific terminology, productization, whatever attachment to it, then that's all I'm going to actually achieve with it. But if I just go, I want to ignite human potential and I want to touch as many people as possible, then it becomes limitless. And also from a technological perspective, we don't know what's going to be available and what opportunities there will be in two years. So really, if I can continue to kind of help and support people and grow and be the best version of me, then I'm happy with that. It's a really refreshing answer. I don't know. Can I copy and paste the same for Lisa Messenger as well? <laughs> Would it be the same answer? So Collective Hub, Lisa Messenger, same thing open, buoyantly optimistic, yet grounded in reality. Let's see where you go. I think so. Because if I had have even answered that, like in 2012 about the print magazine, like I could never have imagined in a million years how big that would get and how extraordinarily exciting that would get. And so I don't want to limit myself. I just want to stay grounded in, you know, let's just go with this. Let's continue to stay on purpose and let's blow the roof off, whatever that looks like. Wow. I've got one more question for you. But let's reflect, a bit of reflective practice. We've been chatting for about 90 minutes. It feels like five. I know. Hopefully people, you might have to cut it into two. Hopefully they stick with us on the journey. We've probably got three. <laughs> what are your takeouts out of this? What are the things we've spoken about that have energized you or that have made you reflect? This is not the question. This is just to reflect. I think the keys, you know, get courageous enough to understand what's holding you back, how you're self-sabotaging how you're keeping yourself small would be kind of number one. And I mean, this is just me talking about my journey, but reflecting back, you know, then once you've dealt with kind of that, then be courageous enough to kind of step into your purpose and understand, well, who am I and what do I want and what are my values and beliefs? And if I could do anything and, you know, money was no object and I could dream big, be, do anything, what would that be? Like, what does my purpose look like? And then I think it's around, you know, surrounding yourself with, an extraordinary team and knowing that you don't have to do it all yourself and understanding your weaknesses, you know, what are you great at? What are you not great at? Where do you need to supplement that? Then not focusing too much on 
specific platforms, specific delivery mechanism, being able to weave, morph, iterate, pivot with markets and flow and continue to change and push yourself. And then, you know, learning the art of surrender. But overarching around that is continuing to do the work, continuing to equip yourself with the tools to continue to step into the, you know, best version of you. I think that's really important not to become complacent, to look at yourself holistically from a, you know, spiritual mind, body, spirit, like the whole kind of piece, because it's only through that really, I would say health has to be number one, absolute not negotiable priority, because without that, we cannot do all of the rest of that. So that's probably my quick summary. (laughs) What a great summary. You've just done my bullet point show notes. You've saved me 30 minutes. No, it's a wonderful reflection. It's actually really nice to see you reflect on that because you've been very open, authentic, very raw. All right, yeah. Lisa Messenger, so much content. Now I'm going to put you on the spot. This is called the Performance Intelligence Baker's Dozen. 13 rapid-fire questions. You just hit me with whichever answer comes to your mind. Question number one, your favourite song or band? Well, do you know anything Deep House or 80s remix? <laughs> oof, 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 two, your favourite movie. Okay, anything that gets me thinking. So a lot of either biopics or something like The Matrix or Insurgent, Divergent, that kind of thing. The woman who creates 40 to 60 products a year can't have one. Your favourite book? (laughs) Favourite book. It's very hard, Andy, because I consume so much. Okay, let's just go with Man's Search for Meaning. That is so like, but I have so many. Okay, Viktor Frankl. Number four, favourite possession. My dog, Benny. I mean, that's not really a possession, is it? <laughs> oh, we'll put a picture up of Benny on this as well. How is Benny? Without Benny. Benny's good, but he's back in Australia. Uh, I've, I've seen Benny, Benny multiple times. He's licked my legs multiple times. <laughs> uh, your favourite food? At the moment, anything healthy. So I love a good salmon uh, with greens in some baking paper just baked in the oven, steamed in its own juices. Mm, yum. Question number six, what time do you wake up and go to bed each day? Ah, now this is going to be a surprise to everyone. I sleep about 10 hours a night. (laughs) So generally I'll wake up at like somewhere between 6 and 8 and I'll go to bed somewhere between 9 and 11. I did not know you were a 10-hour-a-day sleeper. I've known you all this time. How did I not know that? I sleep a long time, but I'm never, ever tired during the day. Yeah, it's because you're so high octane. (laughs) Question seven, (laughs) do you have a morning routine? Yes, I do. I get up, I go to the gym, uh, which is Barry's at the moment, and then generally I'll have a coffee, a green smoothie, and then I don't eat breakfast until 11, and then I'll meditate and I'll do some journaling and I'll generally listen to a podcast on the way to my training. You're a performance coach's dream with that morning routine. Question eight, (laughs) what does your weekly fitness schedule look like apart from Barry's? It looks busy. So I really have learned that as much as it is for my body, it's so much more for my mind. And it is the only thing that really grounds me and keeps me performance fit. And it's not negotiable. And people often say to me, you know, traveling around the world so much, how do you fit in your fitness regimes? Because I know people can make a lot of excuses around that. So we base where we're going to live on what gym and what yoga studio is in walkable distance. Yeah, love it. Question number nine, tell me a go-to productivity tip. Now, this is going to be hard for you because you've written books on this. It's probably, oh, I have so many, but fail fast. I mean, fail fast, fail often. Mm. Question number 10, your most vivid childhood memory. Cantering on my 
Shetland pony bareback and being pig rooted off every single time we rounded the corner and I would just get back on and do it again. And every single time I'd fall off and I would get back on and I loved it. <laughs> I think that's the metaphor for you, cantering on your Shetland pony, <laughs> getting pig rooted off. That's, that's your metaphor for business as well, right? I feel like it is. I feel like that's where it all started. But, you know, it's like probably a cliche for a reason. Fall off, get back on, fall off, get back on, which I feel like I've done a lot of in my business life. Well, it's a good lead into question number 12. The biggest adversity you faced in your business career? It was probably 2017 and it's when I nearly lost everything. And it was when my brand, ironically, was at its global peak and it was the hottest thing on, you know, a lot of people's lips, but I didn't have the right systems and processes in place. We were hemorrhaging cash. And what I learned from that is that I'm a great founder. I'm not necessarily a great CEO. I need a really great data-orientated implementer alongside me. And I think we need to really understand, you know, what are our strengths and what are our weaknesses, play to our strengths and hire our weaknesses. So even though I nearly lost everything, quite literally, um, it was probably one of the greatest lessons because I really burnt everything to the ground and had to rebuild it in a much stronger more sustainable way for longevity. Number 12, what achievement in your life are you most proud of? Being able to get up and keep going, I think, <laughs> no matter what happens, you know, tenacity and resilience. Number 13, what is your definition of high performance? For me, it's actually about almost now simplicity and being content and feeling grounded and centered which is not how I would have answered it before before I would have been like take you on the world and growing and you know it would have been really high adrenaline stuff but now I know when I'm feeling grounded and centered and calm that is when I am absolutely at my freaking premium I, th I think you've evolved to the yin and the yang uh, oh, <laughs> you need to get a massive tattoo on your shoulder the yin and the yang tattoo <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's an evolution, you know. Before I was like busy, I, you know, people, I was glorifying busy. I'm busy, I'm busy, I'm busy. And now I know that busy and productive are two very, very, very different things. I love our catch-ups. I, I learn so much. They go for much longer than we always anticipate, <laughs> <laughs> as listeners will know, uh, if you've come all the way to this on the first listen. For people who do want to connect with you, what's the best way to connect with you and to follow the Lisa Messenger story as you literally take on the world? So at Lisa Messenger or at Collective Hub or now at Collective Hub Kids, which is my next launch. So that those handles across all platforms. At Collective Hub Kids. I've got so many questions. We got to the end of the podcast. Another <laughs> open loop. Right yeah, we'll come back to that later. Look, thank you for your time. I know you've got a jam-packed schedule meeting with lots of people doing lots of great things, but I, I'm proud of you, Lise. And I, I watch what you do and I, I get this sort of balance between inspiration and warmth. It's, it's, it's a weird feeling. I don't get that with many people, but you inspire me. But I, I love seeing you evolve into the woman that you are and the person you are and you, you with such comfort. So I just wanted to say I, I really look at you as a, a role model and a mentor and how you can have this success but also not burn yourself out and get connected and adapt and you're so bloody resilient. So I just wanted to thank you for being here. Oh, thank you and thank you for always 
checking in and being such a good friend over all of these years. We need to stop saying how many years because it's going to age us very quickly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I did say we, we met for 12. Uh, and when, you, when you're back uh, here for a break or a recharge, give me a yell. We'll go down to Bondi and we'll have a catch up. Absolutely. Love you loads. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Hi again, it's Andrew, and I hope you really enjoyed that episode. We would appreciate if you helped to amplify the Performance Intelligence podcast by sharing episodes with your friends and with your colleagues by going to iTunes and leaving a rating and review. This really does help get the message out to a wider audience, and I love reading the comments as well. If you'd like to know more about booking me as a speaker at your next annual conference or company offsite, or purchasing one of the books I've written, including Matchfit, or if you'd just like to receive my monthly e-newsletter, which is called the AM edition, that has stacks of information specific to all things human performance, go to andrewmay.com. And we'll see you on the next edition of Performance Intelligence. Performance Intelligence.